The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're taking a break from the Gospel of John this morning because I want to, what I want to do is I want to expand this morning on the teaching that I did two weeks ago about the vine in John 15.1. In that message, I said, Yeshua identifies himself, not Judah or Israel, as the genuine or the true vine. And then so the question arises, so what happens to old Israel? What happens to physical Israel? What happens to the unfaithful vine? And see, most people believe that physical Israel sometime in the future, to us, is going to be resurrected, reconstructed. Physical Israel will come back. They'll take back their land. They'll go back to doing everything they used to do in the Old Covenant. Well, physical Israel, I said in that message, 15.1, is gone. Forever gone. They're not coming back. When Yahweh destroyed Israel in A.D. 70, the church received her inheritance. The only Israel there is today is the true Israel of God, and that is those who believe in Yeshua. To think that Yahweh was done with physical Israel is problematic for most believers today. See, they think God has made promises that He has to fulfill to physical Israel. So what I want us to do this morning is to look at Paul's words in Romans 11 here, He says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. This is a text that many run to to say, see, God's going to restore Israel at some point in time. This phrase is only five words in the Greek, but upon it have been built multiple theories about Israel. Bob Deffenbaugh, who is a dispensationalist, writes this. He says, Israel's full and final recovery has surely been implied in the preceding verses. But lest there be any doubt that God is going to restore Israel to a place of prominence and blessing in fulfillment of His covenants with the patriarchs, the final recovery of Israel is clearly established in verses 25-32. through So he says here that God is going to restore Israel to a place of prominence and blessing. As I said, these people, they really think that at a point in time, God's going to go back to dealing with physical Israel just as He did in the past. But it seems to me that in this text he's talking about, in Romans 11, Israel's blindness, Israel's judgment, is what is clearly being taught in these verses. See, nowhere in these verses is it even hinted that Israel is going to be restored nationally. As we look at verses 25 and 26 this morning, please keep in mind the context here. That's Romans 11, 11 through 32. That's one section. And we've got to keep that in mind as we look at these. Now, in the message on the true vine, we talked about the olive tree analogy that Paul uses here in chapter 11. And I said that I see the root of the tree as being Abraham and the unilateral covenant that Yahweh made with him. And I see the olive tree as the people of Yahweh, which is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Now, Through the analogy of the olive tree, Paul shows that the Messianic promises were for one people of God, composed of two separate and distinct 
national origins. The olive tree represents all believers. Both Jews and Gentiles are in that tree, and together they make up the one people of Yahweh. Now from this analogy, Paul writes, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now Paul begins this verse with the Greek word gar, which joins it with what precedes. Paul is saying that this passage explains what he's already said. I see this as referring to the olive tree and the union of the Jews and Gentiles into one tree, which he calls a mystery. He says, I don't want you to be unaware. Now this is a familiar phrase with Paul. He uses it to draw attention to the importance of what's about to be said. Paul switches here from the singular in verse 24 to the plural in verse 25. He moves from warning the Gentiles to address the entire congregation. And he said, I don't want you to be aware of the mystery. Now, there are many different views on what this mystery is. <laughs> it's a mystery to many people what the mystery is. But the definition of the mystery is given by Paul in Romans chapter 16, verse 25. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Yeshua the Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. He says, he's talking to them about the revelation of the mystery. He says, that was secret, but now has been disclosed. All right? And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, the mystery, he says, it's something that's been hidden in the past, but now, in Paul's time, it was being revealed in the Scripture. The word translated mystery here is the Greek word mysterion. Vine writes this. He says, in the New Testament, it denotes not the mysterious, but that which being outside the range of unassisted natural apprehension can be made known only by divine revelation and is made known in a manner and at a time appointed by God and to those only who are illuminated by His Spirit. In the ordinary series, a mystery implies knowledge withheld. Its scriptural significance is truth revealed. So, He's saying, you know, the mystery is something that hasn't been revealed, but is now being revealed and people can understand it. Paul wrote wrote this in Colossians. He says, the mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So this mystery is being manifest to all the saints. What is interesting, and I think important to this discussion, is to understand that the word mystery in Paul's writing occurs in close proximity to the word stewardship. He connects his stewardship with the mystery. Look what he says um, in verse 25. He says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given me for you to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages. So Paul associates these two ideas, these two concepts, mystery and stewardship. He does many times in his letters. His stewardship, we could say, is seen to be tied with the deliverance of the ministry. That's Paul's stewardship. That's the sum total of what he's been committed to do is to give the mystery. Now, the Greek word musterion 
occurs 27 times in the New Testament. Three of them are found in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Four of them are in Revelation. The remaining 20 occurrences are in Paul's letters where it takes on the form of a descriptor of the Gospel. Paul's use of this word musterion is not to indicate a secret teaching or some kind of secret rite or ceremony revealed only to you know, certain initiates as the mystery religions taught, but truth revealed to all believers in the New Testament. The truth as Paul sees it in Colossians 1.26, he says, has been now revealed to the saints. It's something that all saints know and understand. It's the mystery, he says, that was hidden for ages and generations. In the Old Covenant, this was not made known. Now in Ephesians 3, Paul unfolds in detail this mystery. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Yeshua on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. So here again, we see this idea of his stewardship is to deliver the mystery. Paul says in verse 4, look, You can understand how I gained my insight into the mystery of Christ. God revealed it to me. Well, what is that mystery? He tells us in verse 5 and 6, he says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. So they didn't get it. It wasn't taught before. As it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body partakers of the promises of Christ Yeshua through the Gospel. So that's the mystery. The Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews. They're members of one body. That's what the mystery is all about. It's the body of Christ. It's the church. Now the Tanakh, the Old Covenant, spoke about Gentile salvation. And the Tanakh spoke about Jewish salvation. But the Tanakh never fully revealed that these two would be brought together in one body the body of Christ, the church. Gentiles are seen experiencing salvation in the Tanakh, but it's always in the context of Israel. Now we find God is going to bring the Gentiles and Jews together in a relationship of oneness in the body. And Paul further explains this in chapter 2. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision." See, the circumcision was a technical designation for Jews. Gentiles were uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's Gentiles. They're strangers from the covenant promises. Which... The covenant promises deals with the roots of the olive tree. This was the position of all Gentiles. They were hopeless. They were without God. It says in verse 13, But now things have changed. In Christ Yeshua, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He has made both Jew and Gentile one. 
We've been brought near to the God of Israel by the blood of Christ. We have been grafted into the roots of Israel. Now notice that both groups are now one. He says that might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Both groups, Jews and Gentiles, are in one body. In Christ we both have access to the Father. Now that was the mystery. Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. We're both in the body of Christ. We're fellow citizens. This is what Paul had just said in Romans 11, 17-24, and using the descriptive, the analogy of the olive tree. Jews and Gentiles were grafted into the same tree, sharing the same root. Now, God's not going to go back at some point in time and say, okay, I'm going back to the Jews. No, it's we become one in Christ. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So again, he emphasizes that he doesn't want the Gentiles or the Jews to be conceited. He's telling them neither is better than the other. Both of them stand by grace in the same body. So there's no room for pride. Now he says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. It's important that we get this because this is where a lot of people just really go off track here, I guess I would say. Partial here is adverbial, and it modifies has come upon. It doesn't modify hardening. It should read like this. A hardening has happened in part to Israel. See, the hardening isn't partial. In other words, it's not the hardening only lasts for a while. No, that's not the idea. It is that it's happened to part of Israel. The remnant is not hardened. And this is what Paul said in 11.7. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. But the elect obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Okay, so here we have this hardening. It's not all Israel that's hardened, because there's an elect remnant. And that's what he says. The elect obtained it, so you got a group within Israel that are elect, that are obtaining it, but you have the rest of them that are hardened. So only part of Israel is hardened. And that part is the great majority. He's just saying that the hardening is not complete. Not everybody's hardened. There are some who have been saved out of their total depravity. They've been brought to the knowledge of the Lord. In other words, he's saying the same thing that he said in verse 5 when he said, so too, at this present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Alright, so in verse 25, he's saying there's a partial hardening. Part of Israel was hardened. But in verse 7, he said the elect obtained it. They weren't hardened. The rest were hardened. And then he says there's a remnant. Now, Paul has already said if there's no partial hardening of Israel, then there's no Gentile salvation in verse 12. Now, if their trespasses means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So Israel's sin, he says, brought about Gentile salvation. Now let me ask you this. What else did Israel's hardening bring about? Well, it brought about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, which brought an end to the old covenant mode of existence and brought in the full consummation of the new covenant. Judgment had to come upon Israel because of her sin. 
<clears throat> now, he says a partial hardening, in other words, part of Israel was hardened until the fullest of the Gentile come in. Now, what does he mean by until here? Most people say, see, until, well, the, the Israel's partially hardened, but once the Gentile fullness comes in, then the hardening stops. Because they say until is a, you know, a reference point like that. But that's not what the Greek phrase used here is akrihos, and it means even to a point. Thayer says this, it is used of things that actually occurred and up to the beginning of which something continued. It's a point of reference. It's not a point of cessation. Let me show you some other uses in the New Testament of akrihos that will help you understand this Greek phrase. Stephen, recounting Israel's history before the high priest, says this, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Alright, so the people are increasing and they're multiplying until this new king arose. Now the word until here is the same word in our text. It's akrihos. And does it mean that the king that didn't know Joseph when he took the throne that the people didn't multiply anymore? No, that's not what it means. It's a point of reference and I can prove that. I can prove that until here does not mean termination by going back to Exodus. It says, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now this is the same thing Stephen is saying in Acts 7. Now let's see what happened when the new king takes over. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. So if until Akrihos, used by Stephen and Acts, means cessation or termination, then the children of Israel would no longer increase or multiply because the new king did in fact try to stop their growth. He did everything he could. But notice what happened. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. So the king's trying to stop them, but it's not working. And the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. See, the king commands the midwives to kill the male Israelites at birth, but they wouldn't. And so the children of Israel just continued to multiply. Verse 20 says, So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. So this is after the new king, who didn't know Joseph, did everything in his power to stop them from growing. The people multiplied, the people became very mighty. So I hope you can see from this Greek phrase, akrihos, does not mean cessation, it doesn't mean termination, it is a point of reference. Let me show you another use of akrihos in the New Testament. In Galatians 3.19, why then the law? Well, he says it was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That's referring to Christ. Now, did the law of Moses end when Christ was born? No. The law didn't end until AD 70 when it was fulfilled. See, part of the law involved the covenantal curses for disobedience. And that took place in AD 70 when Yahweh judged Israel. So we can read our text, A hardening has happened in part to Israel, even into the point where the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
So it's not saying that Israel's hardening stops when the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And that's really important for us to grasp. Alright? Well, what is the fullness of the Gentiles? He said, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. What, what is that referring to? It's important that we understand these terms and get them straight. Well, Bob Deffenbaugh, again, who's a dispensationalist, he writes this. The fullness of the Gentiles refers to that time when the day of the Gentiles ends and the restoration of Israel begins. So that's pretty much dispensational you know, teaching that you know, the fullness of the Gentiles, God's done with the Gentiles, He's got all He's going to get, and He stops dealing with them and He goes back to dealing with Israel again. So he sees it as a signaling the removal of Israel's hardness. In other words, you know, once we get a full number of Gentiles, Israel won't be hardened anymore and God will go back to them. But that's not what the text says. That's the only problem with that. Paul has already said, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now, the form of the word indicates that they were hardened by some outside power, some outside force, and that force is none other than Yahweh Himself. He hardened them. Now think about this with me. Paul says, the elect obtained it. The chosen obtained covenant membership. Faith in God. Salvation. But he says, the rest were hardened. Those, the ones who were hardened would be the ones who were not chosen from eternity past. And since they were not chosen, they never will be chosen. They were hardened, and they always will be hardened. They weren't chosen because they're not elect, so they're hardening. The hardening is a permanent state which will bring judgment. So those of Israel who are hardened will always be that way. That hardening is not going to be removed. The fullness of the Gentiles doesn't change the hardening of Israel. Only the elect are being saved. Now John MacArthur, who also is a dispensationalist, writes this, And what is the fullness of the Gentiles? That's the church. When God has all His redeemed in the church collected together, He's gathered them to Himself in the rapture. He's going to get sucked up off the planet once He gets done with everyone He needs. And He says, I believe, destroy the apostate church on earth, and graft back Israel in the tribulation, and then comes the millennial kingdom and the world blessing. So God's going to rapture out all the church, then He's going to go back to dealing with Israel in the millennium, and it's all about Israel during the millennium. Another commentator writes this, the most credible interpretation seems to be that a day will come when God finishes His work among the Gentiles, and then will turn once again to the mighty power in saving Jews. People, this is what most of the church believe. Israel has a future. Physical, national Israel has a future in the future. Okay? Another commentator writes, God knows the number of the elect, Gentiles. He is calling to Christ. When the number is complete, Israel's blindness will be removed. That's what happened when Jesus returned to the earth. Well, Israel's hardening, according to the Scripture, will never be removed. All right? The ones hardened are the non-elect. And because they're not elect, they'll always be hardened. And they will be judged because of that hardness, not saved. Now most commentators see fullness as meaning the full number of Gentiles. And, you know, 
Bible translations add to this confusion, like the NIV here says, the nearly inspired version. It has full number. When the full number of the Gentiles, that's a bad translation. The contemporary English version has complete number, which is also bad. I think that causes a lot of our problems, is bad translation. Because we read them and we're like, oh, that's talking about this. You know, the King James Bible has done more to make people futurists than anything in the world. Because the end of the world. They didn't know how to translate age. I own. They translated it as world. And so we think the world's going to end. Because we have a bad translation. That's why we need to use multiple translations when we're studying the Scripture. Get different views from different you know, writers of these translations so you can maybe put a complete picture together. The word fullness here is the Greek word pleroma, which means completeness. All right, When the completeness of the Gentiles has come in. It's the same word that Paul uses in 11.12 here when he says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Full inclusion, same word in our text, play Roma, it's talking here about Israel. The fullness of the Gentiles coincides with the fullness of Israel. And I think full inclusion here is referring to the fullness of salvation that's to come at the end of the age. This happens at the parousia. This happens at the second coming. They are complete at that time. Now, he says he gave, notice what he says in Ephesians 4, 11 and 13. He says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the statute of the fullness of Christ. Now he says, until the fullness comes in. Now the word here, until, is not achrihos. It's machri, which means up to a certain point. This is how we normally think of until. All right. The word fullness is the Greek pleroma. The gift stopped, Paul says, when the body was matured. There's, this is another area of huge confusion today. Spiritual gifts. The gifts were for the transition period to equip, to perfect the saints. The fullness of the Gentiles has to do with their perfection in Christ. That perfection, that came to a completion at eighty seventy. It has nothing to do with numbers. It has to do with the maturity of the body. And when it is matured. Look at Romans eleven twenty six, And in this way, he says, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness in Jacob. Now, all Israel will be saved. Like I said, this verse, people run here to prove that sometime in the future, national Israel will be restored. Well, there's three main questions that we have to answer here. First of all, who is all Israel? What does he even mean by that phrase? Is he talking about national Israel? Is he talking about believer? What's he talking about? We have to answer the question, when? When will the salvation occur of all Israel? And thirdly, how will it be accomplished? How is this going to happen? How is all Israel going to be saved? Well, Cranefield lists four options for who. All right. First of all, he says, it's all the elect, all Jews and Gentiles. That's what all Israel means. 
Others would say all the elect of the nation Israel. Okay, that's only those elect from the nation. Others would say the whole nation of Israel, including every individual. In other words, every single Jew is going to be saved. And fourthly, national Israel as a whole, but not necessarily every individual. All right, so they try to cover every base. What, what could all Israel mean here? I'm going to go with A, okay? All Israel here by Paul means all the elect, all Jews, all Gentiles, they're going to be saved. And we'll see how this works out here in a second. Now, the different views of when all Israel will be saved are during the course of present history, sometime during history, they're going to be saved. The immediate, immediately before the second coming. Right before the second coming, all Israel will be saved. And thirdly, at the second coming, all Israel will be saved. Now, the different views of how Israel will be saved are through them coming to faith in Yeshua. I mean, that just makes sense to us. That's how people are saved, right? They come to faith. But other views say through their own faith. You know, this is Hagee's teaching, okay? You know, they have their own covenant. They don't, need the, they don't need Christ. Jews don't need Christ. Christ came for Jews, but they don't need Him. Right? That's Hagee's teaching. Or C, through some direct divine intervention which may or may not involve Christian faith. In other words, they figure out some other way. We just want to make sure we cover all the bases here, right? Alright, Dispensationalism says that at the end of the church age, the church is going to be raptured out. And God's going to once again begin to deal with national Israel. During the tribulation, they say many Jews will be saved, and the millennium will be, time, the millennium will be a time of Jewish dominance. They say that so all Israel will be saved refers to Israel being restored as a nation. That's how most dispensationals would take this. John MacArthur writes this, And so all Israel shall be saved. You know he wanted to say that. And please, there is no way to interpret that other than as the nation Israel. You know, <laughs> when people say things like this, they're saying, you better listen to me because you can't do it any other way. All right? There's no other way. There's always another way. Okay? He says, and be fair with the text. Well, he's not being too fair with the text himself. He says, it cannot refer to Jewish, a Jewish remnant it is said in contrast to the doctrine of the remnant, which has already been given. What he is saying is there has always been a remnant, and there always have been a group of Jews redeemed, but someday the nation will be redeemed. Any other viewpoint does terrible injustice to the text. That's psychological manipulation there. You can't believe anything else, you're messing with the text, okay? That's what he's telling you. Now, here's the problem here with what he's saying. There's nothing in this text about national Israel. Not one word. And as we have said, those who are not chosen are hardened. And that's the end of it. They're not going to be... They weren't elect. So they're going to stay hardened. Many commentators see a, a contradiction that they just can't fix between chapters 9 and chapters 11 of Romans. And this is because they see chapter 9 is teaching that salvation is promised only to spiritual Israel. But they see chapter 11 arguing that ethnic Israel will be saved. And that would be a contradiction if Paul was saying that all ethnic Israel will be saved. But he's not saying that. It's only a remnant that is saved. 
Now, other scholars, and I use that term loosely, have suggested that Paul didn't realize when he wrote chapter 9 what he was going to write in chapter 11. Now, if you believe in mechanical dictation, I guess that would make sense. In other words, Paul just sat down, and he picked up the pen, and his hand started moving. And he just, he said, wow, that's cool. Look what I'm writing. That's not inspiration, people. Okay, God used Paul. He used Paul's education. He used Paul's personality. Paul knew what he was writing, okay? But he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. Making all Israel mean ethnic national Israel causes huge problems with the text. Now, some scholars also say that the promise of salvation to all ethnic Israels contradicts what Paul says about the Jews in 1 Thessalonians. And it does contradict this. Look what he says. Talking about the Jews, he says, who killed both the Lord Yeshua and the prophets, that's the Jewish people, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. See, they're, they're not elect, they're not chosen, and they're hardened, and they're going to receive wrath. Now, after all the time Paul spent in Romans, and that's the thing, if you're you know, studying a book, you don't just jump in in chapter 11, you bring it up to speed with the context there. And after all he's done in teaching in this book that national Israel doesn't matter, he keeps driving home the point, it's faith that matters. And then does he come to chapter 11 and contradict everything he said and say that someday national Israel will be everything? No, he doesn't do that. Now, John Piper, another dispensationalist, writes, I don't think the meaning of Israel changes between verse 25 and 26. The hardened Israel, the nation as a whole, will be saved. Israel, the nation as a whole. Well, first of all, the hardened Israel is part of Israel, not the whole nation. And the saved have always been the remnant. So, that he's way off there. And secondly, if you don't think the meaning of the term Israel changes between two verses, you don't understand Paul's opening argument to this whole section in chapter 9, where he says, but it's not as though the word of God failed. Okay, see, they're thinking God's promises have failed because the Jews are not receiving all these promises. And then Paul makes this clarification that you've got to get it is so important. He says, not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. He uses Israel there in two different ways. There's Israel physical descendants. But he says it's not all the physical descendants that belong to true Israel. His Paul, this, this opening argument of this section, of this theodicy, is giving us a clear signal that Paul is redefining the term Israel. Now, as far as the who here, all right, who is all Israel? I think very clearly it's all the elect. It's Jews and Gentiles, because Paul in this book is redefining Israel. All Israel is referring to the remnant, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, and believing Gentiles. The all here is the same all of Romans 10, 12. There is no distinction between Jews and Greeks. See, he's taking that any distinction away. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. This is all Israel. It's all who call upon Him. It's all who share 
the faith of Abraham, he said in chapter 4, verse 16. This is why it depends on faith. He's making that really important. It's about faith, not about nationality. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be granted to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. So it depends on faith. And it's those who are related to Abraham. Now the it here refers back to verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his descendants that he would be an heir of the world. It's the promise that is by faith. What is it that guarantees the promise that you will be an heir? Well, the answer is God's grace. The only way our eternal future can be guaranteed is if it rests on grace. Grace is the free and undeserved work of God to bring people to glory. Now, the last part of this verse sounds a little confusing, but the intent is to say that the inheritance is available to both Jewish believers and Gentile believers who share the faith of Abraham. It was always God's plan to have a single worldwide family, a single seed, Messiah and His people. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. Now he is interpreting here the old covenant for us. The promises God made to Abraham were to Abraham and his offspring. And he does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So God made a promise to Abraham and Christ. That's it. Well, so how do we get in on it? By being in Christ. Then in verse 26 he says, For in Christ Yeshua, by faith in Him, you all are sons of God. Sons of God was a designation for Israel, but it's now used for all believers. See, Abraham is now the father of all who believe, not just Jews, but Gentiles also. Romans 4.11 says, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. See, they couldn't understand you being in the covenant if you hadn't been circumcised. So the righteousness would be counted to them as well. The purpose was to make him father of all who believe. He didn't need to be circumcised anymore. Paul is redefining Israel throughout this whole letter. This is a, these are powerful verses. These are verses you need to mark, you need to memorize. So you can deal with this whole Jewish argument. Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Well, that was all of what Jewishness was about. I'm born of the tribes of Israel. I'm a physical descendant of Jews. I'm physically circumcised. But he says, Nor is circumcision outward and physical. What? That's the only way they had circumcision. So he's redefining it, watch. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letters, praises, not from man, but from God. So Paul makes a distinction between the outward and the physical and the inward and the spiritual. Once the new covenant arrived, once the Lord started teaching this truth, the only true Jews are those who trusted Christ. That's what a Jew was from that point on. All other physical Jews who didn't trust Christ were covenant breakers. No matter what rights they held to, no matter what they did, when they rejected Christ, they were no longer Israel. 
Now, in this context, Paul uses Jew as the people of God. Those chosen by Him. Those shown God's favor. Those in covenant with Him. That's the true Jew. And it's an inward thing. Look what Paul said to the Philippians. We can read through this stuff and not pick this up if you don't get Paul's designations here. He says, for we are the circumcision. Again, the circumcision is a technical designation for Israel. They were the circumcision. He says, but Paul's here saying, we, me and the Philippian believers, are the circumcision. Referring to himself and all the Christians there at Philippi. But what Paul says to them is is true of all believers, all Christians. Theologically, this is very significant. This is Paul's description of the church of Christ. The church is the true circumcision. We're the true circumcision. Now watch, he says, we worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Yeshua and we put no confidence in the flesh. You know, the Jews, everything is physical. Everything is fleshly. But no, we worship by the Spirit. We glory in Christ. It's all about Christ. And we don't put any confidence in the flesh. That's the description, people, of a Christian. In Romans 9, 6 again, he says, it's not all who are descended from Israel that belong to Israel. You can be from Israel and not be an Israelite because you're not a true Israelite if you don't trust Christ. There's true Israel, the believing remnant within the nation Israel. He's telling them that physical descent didn't mean that they were the true people of God. This is different from what they had been taught. Look Galatians 3.29. If you're Christ, if you trusted Christ, you believed in Him, you're Abraham's offspring. And guess what? You're heir to the promise. Because the promise was made to Abraham and Christ, and you're in Christ, and you receive the promise. It doesn't matter whose blood you have in your veins. It's whose faith you have in your heart. It's covenant, not race, that makes one a Jew. Galatians 6, 15 and 16. For neither circumcision counts for anything. Now, to the Jews, circumcision meant everything. You had to be circumcised to be part of Israel. But, he says, a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What is the rule that they're to walk by? Well, the rule ties directly to the previous verse that Paul says he's got no boast except in the cross. That's the rule of his life. There's only one way to walk. And that's by way of the cross, which is metonymy for justification by faith alone. We're to walk by that rule. It's a very narrow path. It's very few that find it. And those who find it are the remnant chosen by grace whom God has drawn. They are the Israel of God by faith in Yeshua. Every Jew, every Gentile who is trusted in the Lord Yeshua can say, I'm a Jew. These promises are mine. This is my story. This is my Messiah. This is my God. So he says, then all Israel are going to be saved. It's all of true Israel. It's all of spiritual Israel. It's all of those who are united by Christ by faith. It's all of those who are in the olive tree that he's been talking about. And then he goes into verse 26 and it begins this way. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. In this way is the adverb huto. And it can be translated in this manner. All Israel will be saved. Huto can refer to what precedes or what follows. 
But it seems logical here to connect it with what follows. In this manner, all Israel will be saved. How? By the Deliverer who comes out of Zion. And that answers the question when this is to happen. It happens at the parousia. The Deliverer is going to come from Zion. He's going to banish ungodliness from Jacob. Now this text is a combination of Isaiah 59.20 and 27.9. And it's a reference to the second coming. This is one of those places where if you didn't know what time it was, you're going to misinterpret Scripture. See, all Israel being saved is not something future to us. It happened at the return of Christ. That's what he says here. When's all Israel going to be saved? When the Deliverer comes out of Zion. That happened at AD 70. And I think what we have to understand is preterism is more than an eschatology. It's a hermeneutic. It affects how you interpret Scripture. Salvation, which was their perfection in Christ, was was not complete until the return of Christ. And most people don't get that. Most people who believe the the return of Christ is still future, they don't understand that salvation is not complete until He returns. Let's look at a few scriptures here. Hebrews 9.28 So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Now this is the only place in the New Testament where the return of Christ is called the second coming. His appearing is said to be for salvation. To save. Peter says their salvation, the people he was writing to, was not complete. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, it was going to be revealed at the last time, which would be the return of Christ. Eternal life was something that was to come to them at the second coming in the age to come. So if Christ hasn't returned yet, then salvation is not complete yet. Here's a, a verse that, pick up a commentary and read what they say on this. It's actually comical for the most part, okay? Watch. He says, who will receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions. Now watch. And in the age to come, eternal life. See, eternal life was the condition of the age to come. They didn't have it yet until Christ returned. It was a promise but it was something they hadn't had in its full form. So he says, and by this, all Israel will be saved. So at the return of Christ, Israel, both houses, Israel and Judah, received their salvation, their fullness, and the Gentiles also received their salvation in its consummated form, which is the fullness of the Gentiles. So we got the fullness of Israel, the fullness of the Gentiles. You have all Israel saved by the Deliverer who comes out of Zion. Now, in the Tanakh, the Deliverer is clearly Yahweh. And he's quoting here, right? But for Paul, it's Yeshua who's the Deliverer. Because as we've said over and over, Yeshua is Yahweh. He's the God of Israel. And it's not until His return that all Israel will be saved. And to think that Paul is dealing here with a physical nation, first of all, like I said, it's not in the text. All through this book, he's redefined Israel. Israel is spiritual. 
Israel is those who trust in Christ. The true Jew is only one who trusts Christ. From that point on, the rest of them were covenant-breaking Christ-rejectors who didn't have the Son, they didn't have the Father also. So all Israel being saved is all believers, Jews and Gentiles, coming in to the body of Christ. It's their completion, their fullness that happened at the second coming. So people, there's no future for Israel. God's done with Israel. He shut it down in AD 70. He destroyed the temple. From then on, they have never sacrificed. Now, the Jewish religion kept going. They just redefined everything. See, they still celebrate all these different feasts, but not like the Bible tells them to because there's no more sacrificing. They still celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Today. But the biblical Feast of Tabernacles, you had to kill 70 bulls. They're not killing any. But they're saying they're still doing the same thing. Okay, they, they just tried to keep on going. And for some reason, Christians just think, you know, God, those are God's people. We are God's people. Christians. Not physical Israelites. And if a physical Israelite rejects Christ, he is not a, of the people of God. As we've seen Yeshua, you know, in, in John make this so clear. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. That's it, people. It's not about Israel anymore. He's done with Israel. He's turned to the church. We are the completion. We have the promises. Because the promises were to Abraham and Christ. And we're in Christ. The promises are ours. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Help us to realize who we are in You, Lord. Help us to realize that we partake of all the promises You made to Abraham. We are Abraham's descendants in Christ. Thank You for that, Lord. May we be bold in our proclamation that we are true Israel. We really are the Israel of God by faith in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen.